Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. We need to take a stand in our society. There's a lot of lies that the devil's promoting into the minds of young people. And it's lies and it's going to hurt them dearly. It's going to cost them eternity. We need to make a stand. The Israelites in Jerusalem when Jeremiah was a prophet were fairly confident in themselves because after all, they had the temple. They had the presence of God. But God's not interested in good impressions and heartless religion. Remember what happened in Shiloh is the warning. Dr. Corbett is in Jeremiah chapter 7 tonight with the question, anyone seen Shiloh lately? Now we're going to open God's word and invite him to speak to us. So let's pray. Father, we need you now to come and open our hearts and our minds and our lives. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you, you will unstop our ears and help us to hear what you want us to hear right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Jeremiah chapter 7, and this is one of the most significant chapters in the, the entire book. It is so significant, we're going to do a couple of things differently. And one of the things that, that I'm going to do is, is I'm, I'm going to actually tell you where I'm going over the next um, five sessions in this book, because I want you to get just a bit of a roadmap for where we're going in, in the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to be anchoring a lot of what we're doing over the next month and a half out of this one chapter. It, there's just too much in here to rush through it. And you, you may have heard the expression, you've got to, sometimes you've just got to stop and smell the roses in life. And I hope that we can do that as we look at this book. And, and you know, this, this book is no ordinary book. This book claims over three and a half thousand times to be the word of God. It claims to be the word of God. We know that in this book, there's a number of things that support that claim. One is its ability to predict the future rather uncannily. And so we have in this book of Jeremiah, what I consider to be perhaps the most powerful proof that this Bible is God's word. This is not the product of man. This is the product of God. And so when we, when we look at Jeremiah, we're going to see Jeremiah is going to make certain what we call prophetic claims. This will happen in the future. And what we're going to see that within his own lifetime, those things happened. Such was the extent of recognition that those things happened, that when the Babylonians eventually invaded Israel, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, said, find Jeremiah because everything he foretold has happened and it's gone around the whole known world. This young man has become famous. So even in his own day, the prophet was regarded as somebody who could speak the word of God about the future and it would be fulfilled with exact precision. Now, of course, Jeremiah not only prophesied things within his own day, Jeremiah prophesied things that would take place in 600 years. Staggering. So we have in Jeremiah 29, chapter 29, chapter 30, 31, 32 and 33, Jeremiah prophesying about Jesus Christ 600 years before it happened. Just try doing that sometime. It's not easy. And he got it exact. And you've got to ask yourself the question, if you're a rational, free-thinking person, 
How is that possible? Not just to get it right once, but to get it right hundreds of times throughout this book. This is no ordinary book. You will read this and it will grip your soul. You'll read this and it will stir your heart. It will challenge your mind. This is the word of God. And I guarantee you, if you read it with an attitude that says, I'm not going to let God have my life, you will find this very, very difficult. Very difficult. Because through the prophet Jeremiah, God is not interested in negotiating. God does not negotiate with sinners. It is absolute surrender on his terms and his terms alone. Now, in in Jeremiah chapter 7, we have the first account of one of the first encounters that Jeremiah had with King Jehoiakim. In chapter 6, the king at the time is King Josiah. He was known as a good king. Now, King Josiah was a boy king. He was about eight years old when he became king. He died I think when he was in his 30s, he died very young. In fact, he died too young. He died even though the prophet warned him that he would if he took that course of action. So Josiah died. A new king came along. And eventually we have this wicked king, King Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim is more interested in the power that he wields than in doing the right thing. He's more interested in the applause of men. He's more interested in people looking up to him than he is in leading the people he's supposed to be leading. It's a deadly combination for somebody who's supposedly a leader when they will not lead. And so we have this account recorded twice in this book. In chapter 7, we have what we might call a summary of what happened. And, And no doubt there have been incidents in your life which you've maybe told your children many many times over and perhaps every time you tell it it comes out a little bit differently it's not that you're distorting the facts it's just sometimes you give and we even offer people would you like the short edition or would you like the long edition in jeremiah chapter 7 we're going to look at the first seven verses so there's a little bit of background that we need here and it goes something like this when god called israel out of egypt The first thing he did when he got them out of Egypt was gave them the plans for a tent. What? Yes, he gave them the plans for a tent. He gave Moses instruction to build this thing called a tabernacle, which a tabernacle is essentially a canvas box. It's a great big box. And so this tabernacle, this huge thing, four meters high or so, and and, uh, there it was... um, six meters by uh, about four meters and it was a rectangular thing it was divided with a curtain in the middle and it was made out of all kinds of weird fabric and mostly leather and linen and stuff and inside there was a thing called the ark of the covenant which as you would know if you're an avid movie watcher we've now lost that because indiana jones the twit lost it And so we haven't got it. But anyway, the the Ark of the Covenant was there. And inside that was the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and a few other things. And then on the other side of that was what what I might call a candelabra. It was like a seven-armed candlestick, all hollow, all fed by oil. It's called the menorah. And it was to be lit all the time. And then there was a little table over there. It was uh, 
two foot, one foot, one foot, one foot, called the, um, uh, there was, the, uh, and it, it, it had, um, well, the, the, that, that was the altar, sorry, and that, that had coals. It was always to have incense put on it. It was to fill that little room of the tent with, with, a, with a light smoke fragrance. And uh, that's the altar of incense. Then there was, then there was a, a, a table that was to have every day 12 little loaves, just little flat loaves of bread put on there every day. And that was the tabernacle. Outside that, that tent was a great big wash basin, great big basin made out of bronze, brass mirrors, so that the priest, when he, before he went in there, he was to look inside this and was always to have fresh, clean water in it. He would take the water, he would wash his face, wash his hands, wash his feet. The water, of course, um, is symbolic of the word of God for us today. We are to wash our hands, our feet every day. You may not think that the word of God as you read it is doing you any good, but it's washing you. It's washing you. You may think you come to drink it, but it thinks it's coming to wash you. And so uh, you may not feel that, you know, your belly's full, but your hands may be clean as a result of you just reading the Bible every day. And of course, the bronze bowl was made from the bronze mirrors. Every time the priest would look into the still pure water of this, he would see his face. That's what James says in James chapter one, isn't it? We look into the word of God like a mirror. He's thinking of this thing. And so that was the tabernacle. Eventually, when they came into the promised land, because this thing wandered around in the desert with them for 40 years, and everywhere they went, they had to set it up and take it down and set it up and take it down. And there's all these procedures for this. And eventually they, they came into the promised land and this thing got, got um, set up in a place called Shechem. Then eventually its last resting place was a place called Shiloh. And Shiloh has become synonymous for meaning the, the, the place of the presence of God. So I need you to understand all of that background information as we now read this section here in Jeremiah 7. This is where we're going to go. Today, we're going to be looking at, has anyone seen Shiloh lately? Has anyone seen Shiloh lately? And the prophet's going to refer to this tabernacle in Shiloh. And if you didn't know what I just told you, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Here's my subtitle for today's message. What does a house look like when God trashes it? If you're in Jeremiah 7, I want you to put your finger there. I want you to come with me to the other telling of this chapter, which is chapter 26. Please come with me, chapter 26. And I I need you to see this very quickly. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way. Do you see the heart of God here? It may be that as you speak, Jeremiah, these people that I'm getting you to speak to will actually listen. God, give us ears to hear today. Amen. And everyone turn from his evil way. Why? That I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. Verse four, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I've set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like what? 
Shiloh. I will make this house like Shiloh. And I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Verse 7. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house shall be like Shiloh and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And the rest of the scene is not pretty where they talk about killing Jeremiah and eventually sense prevails. Jeremiah's benefactor, a man, uh, steps up and protects him and uh, he is spared. So now that's some of the background there. So let's come back to chapter seven now, because what you're going to read in in Jeremiah chapter seven is a, a much more sanitized version of that. What you're going to read in chapter 7 is something where it doesn't talk about the personal danger Jeremiah had in delivering this word. You know, this reminds me of the time when Jesus sat on a hillside at the top of a hill. And there, and there as he sat there and the people were sprawled down the hillside and up the next hill, a natural valley, a natural amphitheater where Jesus chose to speak the greatest sermon most commentators have called it the greatest sermon that's ever been told. We have Jesus speaking the Beatitudes. And in this sermon, we read, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. And we read that and go, oh, that's, that's lovely. And Jesus says, if, if someone asks you to go one mile, you go two. Someone asks for your coat, give them your shirt also. Doesn't that sound lovely? But you know what had happened just a week before in that part of the world? The Romans had come in and slaughtered the men of that village. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers. And what we don't read is the context in which people are going, how dare he say make peace with Rome? If someone asks you to go one mile, go with him too. Who was asking them to go one mile? The Roman centurions marching to slaughter their brothers and sisters. Carry my pack for a mile, Romans could order the citizens of that country. And Jesus is saying, don't just go one, go two. Can you see how these flowery words of Christ were actually, if you get it in context, it took great courage for him to say what he said in the Beatitudes. And here we have Jeremiah, and I wanted you to see chapter 26 is the background to chapter 7. When Jeremiah spoke this, it would eventually lead to him literally having the point of a sword shoved right into his belly, the, the point of a dagger and the blade of a dagger put to his throat. Now, who is going to say, yes, Lord, I will speak to these people when you know that's what might happen. That's what Jeremiah was facing. And so as we read this, I want you to see something perhaps you've never seen before. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the prophet who wept. I want you to see this. We're in Jeremiah. We could look at verse 1. I could make a big point about the fact that we now have a different king reigning. I could make a point about the fact that chapter 6 was King Josiah. 
chapter 7, verse 1, is King Jehoiakim. I could make the point to you that Jeremiah had gone a long time without hearing from God. And you may be in a season where you are not hearing from God. That does not mean a thing. If your heart is right with God, just keep going. Just keep going. Keep going. Keep doing the right thing. Keep being open to the word of God. Because here we have chapter 7, many years later. Chapter 7, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now notice this, verse 2. This is what we're going to have a look at. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Let's take this verse apart. I want you to see something here. Stand. Stand. What does it mean to stand? You see, in a biblical sense, to stand is to to be resolute. I'm taking a stand. Why didn't God just say, just Jeremiah, just go down there, speak the word and run. No, go down there and stand. Sometimes it's not just what you say, it's the way you say it that counts. Imagine people driving off the Derwent Bridge during the 1970s and someone going, oh, I wouldn't do that, the bridge is down. The tr- it's true. But imagine someone on the other side of the road going, stop, don't go, stop, the bridge is down. Same words, but said differently. Jeremiah, stand, take a stand, stand. What are some of the other words? Rise up, take position. And church, we need to do that. We need to do that. We need to take a stand in our society. There's a lot of lies that the devil's promoting into the minds of young people, into the minds of people out there. And it's lies and it's going to hurt them dearly. It's going to cost them eternity. We need to make a stand. There is a lie that says all religions lead to God. There is a lie that says God is not that concerned about whether you call him Jesus, Buddha or Krishna. That is a lie. It's not true. We need to take a stand. There is a lie that says God doesn't care how you uh, conduct yourself sexually. You can just do whatever you want sexually. God is, after all, love. That is a lie. God cares intimately what you do with your body. He cares intimately about how you form relationships with people. He is the ultimate relationship. And he cares about the relationships we form with people. It matters, church. It matters. Notice the next thing, in the, where? In the gate. You see, what is a gate? See, biblically, a gate means something. When we talk about a gate in the Bible, it's, it's that place of power. It's that place where those of influence are, in the gate. Uh, we, I, we could go through the various scriptures. Time prohibits that. But Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of the enemies, of his enemies. And so this expression, the gate, uh, Genesis 24, 60, again, um, uh, speaks of the blessing of possessing the gate. Amos five ten. They hate him who reproves in the gate. So the gate is that gate of the city where the elders would would be there, and they would see who comes in, who goes out. And if you had a problem, if you had a question, if you needed a judgment, you would go to the gate, and the elders would be there. The leaders of the city would be there. You remember Jerusalem was built with David's chamber over the gate 
of Jerusalem. So when David came into the city, he went into his house over the gate of the city of Jerusalem. So he was right there to form judgment. And so the gate. So he was told, Jeremiah was told, take a stand in the gate. Now, it's one thing for us to preach here on a Sunday. It's one thing for us to do church here on a Sunday. We're tucked away. We're off the highway. No one can see us. We've got blinds down. Quick, let's worship. Hope no one sees me. But Jeremiah's told, take a stand in the gate. Don't be shy about this. Get in the most prominent, most public position in the marketplace and tell them my word. I want to do that as a church. Now, oftentimes, you know, we... we have forgotten what it is to be a witness because we're afraid of the persecution we're going to suffer. Here's Jeremiah. Take a stand and do it in the gate. He's going to come under tremendous persecution, as we've seen. But here's here's the other interesting thing. He was told to declare this as people were going into the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord. Now, I find this incredible. I find it incredible for, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, this house was not the house of the Lord. And we're going to see that very clearly in a moment. God said, I'm not there. And here's Jeremiah being told in almost an ironic sense, speak this in the Lord's house because it was not God's house. But here's the, here's the interesting thing that Jeremiah was told, that, that he was to speak this in the, Lord house, in the Lord's house to all the men, to all the men. And this is interesting on a, on a couple of levels. Firstly, what was he told to speak? Well, he's told to speak the word of the Lord. And Jeremiah is told that they may hear the word of the Lord. And I just kind of pause there and think, well, if you're going to, where, where else in society are you more likely to hear the word of the Lord? I hope it's in church. I hope it's in church. And Jeremiah is told to speak the word of the Lord to all of the men. You know, men have a a greater responsibility for leadership than women do. Men are called to lead. They are. And Jeremiah is told, speak to the men. Speak to those men whose responsibility it is to lead. Now, men, what do you do when you get all your family at those rare moments at a dinner table together? You know, in our house, um, when Tyrone lived at home before he went to university... It was just a rare, it became a rare moment with kids off working here and there and sport and all the rest of it to actually get the family together at mealtime. But I thank God I've got a wife who was OCD about this, um, only Christ devoted. And she, she wants the whole family to sit at a dinner table. And what a great moment for fathers to say, after we have eaten our meal, don't rush off. Grab your Bible and come back to the table. And I want you to each to share a Bible verse. And then we're going to pray as a family. That's called family worship, family devotion. You know, in the old days before television, Christian dads used to do that a lot. That's called leading your family in worship. Jeremiah is told to speak to the men because they bear greater responsibility. Now, here's the other interesting thing is that it's almost mocking. It's almost like God is mocking the people. It's almost like God is saying, you've come to hear the word of the Lord and you've come to worship me. Bunk. Because this is what verse 2 goes on and says, to speak to all, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. See, what does it mean to worship the Lord? You see, you can lift your hands and you can do the whole thing and you could even go to a, 
uh, a youth style evangelistic service and, and thrash your head about and you walk out of there and, and you start living the way a non-Christian lives and your worship amounts to very little, very little. And Jeremiah is going to nail them about this. What does worship look like? Today we are, as uh, Dr. Amanda said, depleted. Not that those who are playing are depleted or demented in any way because I thought they did a great job. Great job. And uh, I think Amanda always does a great job when she leads our worship. But you know, what if Amanda was just up here playing the jaw harp or the wax comb or the egg shaker and had no instruments? What would be in your heart? I only worship to a seven piece band, not entering in. God help us. What's in your heart? Well, I'm an intellectual. I don't enter into this singing stuff. Well, poo poo on you. Really, we've got to have hearts that want to worship. Come on, this is good preaching. The Bible says encourage yourself if no one else does. So. <laughs> Jeremiah 7 verse 3. Come on, we're nearly there. We've just got a few verses to go. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Now this is really, really, really important because today there's a whole bunch of people over in Israel getting killed because they don't get this. There are people killing people today because they think God gave me this real estate and I don't care who owns it. I'll kill them if they're on it because God gave it to us and it's rubbish. Whose land is it? The Arabs say it's ours. The Palestinians say it's ours. The Jews say it's ours. Whose land is it? I'll tell you right now. It's God's. It's God's. And very interestingly, the Bible rarely uses the term holy land or, and I'm pretty sure never uses the expression holy city to describe Jerusalem. Very interesting. So amend your, amend your ways and deeds. Now I want you to see this, your ways, the way you worship, the when you come, here they are coming to worship and Jeremiah says amend your ways. Here they are coming into worship, amend your ways. When you come into church on Sunday, oh, please, dear God, please, church, can we see Jesus? Can we please focus on Jesus? Can there be something in our heart that says, I'm here for Jesus. I want to focus on Jesus. I want my heart to worship Jesus. I don't care if you sing off key. I don't care if you sing out a beat. I don't care if you clap on the first and third instead of the second and the fourth. It doesn't really matter. Let our ways be to worship God. Amen. And your deeds, you see, what you do when you worship God is only half of the story. The other half of the story is what you do when you leave this house. That's your deeds. The way you treat people, the way you talk to people, the way, you know, some of you need to smile more. Amend your deeds. Amend your deeds. The way you treat people, the way you interact with people, the way you treat people who cut you off in traffic, the way people who stand in eight items or less with 17 items. Just relax. Amend your deeds. The person at the party who gets a slice of cake slightly bigger than yours. Ask them if they'd like yours as well. <laughs> Amend your deeds. The prophet is saying that if, if all you are is a Sunday Christian, more or less, and not a Monday Christian, you need to amend your ways and amend your deeds. And then God says, I'll let you dwell in this land. 
I'll let you, I will let you dwell in this land. See, whose land is it? It's God's. God thinks they're just tenants. God thinks he's the landlord. You see, I got, I'll tell you right now, the gospel is about salvation from sin, not about a patch of dirt over in the Middle East. That should be a revelation to a whole bunch of people. God says this. All right, verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah saying God's going to get rid of this temple just like he got rid of Shiloh. Just like he got rid of Shiloh, he'll get rid of this temple. And the people are going, no, it'll never happen. Never happen. This is where God dwells. Now notice this. Shiloh was outside of the city. It wasn't the focus point. It was outside of the city and it had fallen into disrepair. When God is not the center of your life, your devotional life to God will fall into disrepair. Heard the story of a businessman who came to his pastor and said, Pastor, I'm, uh, look, I just, I'm just in a really busy season expanding the business at the moment. I, I know I haven't been in church for a while. Um, my, my family's getting here, but I just, I'm just so busy. I can't get here on a Sunday. And the pastor just turned to him and said, Brother, your place is with your family in church on a Sunday. Well, I can't. I'm just too busy. Then you will never, ever, ever get your priorities straight. He said, no, no, Will, this, this won't last. This won't last. No, you need to make God, his house, with your family, a priority. He said, I will, I will, soon. I just got to see my life through this patch. And the pastor said, it will never happen. If you can't do it now, you'll never do it. Within 12 months, that man was divorced, not going to church. His wife and family were gutted and devastated, weeping most Sundays in church over the breakdown of their family. What does the devil have to do to distract you from God? Well, pastor, I get another two bucks an hour of a work on Sunday. You'd sell your soul for two bucks? Two bucks. Is that all? The devil takes two bucks. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. There's nothing superstitious about the way we respond to God. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, what does that look like? Verse 6, if you do not oppress the sojourner, that is the the stranger, the refugee, the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, you see, whenever you make something else your God, whether it be your job, your business, whether it be a relationship you're in, whether it be your car, whether it be your sport, whether it be your hobby, whenever you make something else your God, apart from God, there is only one person who suffers, and that's you. Many, many times a Christian girl has been lured away from following God to go after a non-Christian boy who has said, yeah, 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 I'm pretty interested, I'm pretty open to this, all the while being deceived. To your own harm, it says, to your own harm. A couple of questions as we focus on this. Whenever you don't put God first, it's not him who gets hurt, it's us. His laws are a map of the minefield of life and we need to appreciate that. Jeremiah 7, 7. Then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I, get, uh, that I gave of old to your fathers forever. See, here's a couple of questions as we ponder this because I want you to get this. Today, is God about to destroy our city? Is God about to come and invade our land? Well, not that I know of. Is that what it would take to bring you to repentance? Is that what it would take to bring me to repentance? Hey, I need to repent. I need to recalibrate my life on God. I want God to be number one in my life. I don't want him to be a distant second. I want him to be number one. What would it take for God to get your attention in a way where he 
removes every other idol of your affection, what would it take? See, it says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 that right now, God is not going to bring disaster on your life. He's going to bring kindness. And God says it's actually his kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance, to repent. So here's a couple of questions I want to ask you. Is Christ the center of your life? Do you live with everything being referenced to Christ? And I want to finish with this thought. Because as Jeremiah was saying, remember Shiloh. Let me tell you what happened to Shiloh. That tabernacle became tattered. The poles became weathered. The fence around it became flapping in the breeze with rips and tears. It was an absolute embarrassment. And Jeremiah says, remember Shiloh, this once glorious tabernacle that God gave Moses to build, is now flapping in the breeze in utter disrepair. That's what happens if you don't maintain your relationship with God. Your relationship with God, if you don't look after it, can become like Shiloh. Remember Shiloh. This is the message of the prophet Jeremiah from 2,615 years ago. Let's pray. Father, we need you and your word more than ever. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to follow you closer than ever. Help us to be found in you more than ever. Now, Lord, if there are those here today and they know that they don't have peace with you, that their eternity, if they were to have their last breath this day, their last heartbeat this day, they don't know that when their soul leaves their body that they would go to be with you and to be found at peace with you. Lord, they've tried to negotiate peace rather than accept the terms of surrender. And if that's you, you know that you're not at peace with God. Then I've got to tell you that Jesus Christ is the most loving, forgiving, kind and compassionate person you'll ever meet. You can know a love and a, and a forgiveness and a peace that you have never known through praying one prayer from your heart that says, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sin and help me to live for you. I invite you, I plead with you, I beg you, pray that prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Heartless religion does not cut it with God. God sees through our religious performance, our impression management. The warning, remember Shiloh. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Jeremiah Part 13, Anyone Seen Shiloh Lately, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.